where it's even more exciting for me to be in the house of the Lord and to worship. And, and some weeks I just need that worship even more than other weeks. But, uh, you know, it's it's been a good week and, and I'm thankful that the Lord is in my life because, you know, people go through things and, and to, I, don't, I don't understand how people go through trials without the Lord. And uh, I know that it's hard enough with Him. And so I'm thankful to be able to gather regularly with believers and to be encouraged and, and all those things. And so uh, that being said, we're going to turn to the book of Mark. Imagine that. We're going to go to Mark tonight. And uh, we're going to study uh, chapter 6. <clears throat> but before we do that, we've got a couple of announcements. I think it's the weekend of July 14th. I think it's the 14th is that Sunday. We'll be having a, uh, a church picnic. We're going to meet with the, the people from Parkland Chapel, and we're going to get together corporately at the Valencia's house. If you guys have met Francisco, uh, Francisco, if you could wave. Francisco is over here on this side, and uh, and he's ha he's uh, been gracious enough to invite everyone out to the house, and, and they've got a river right there next to the house, and they've got a pool and some stuff, and and we're just going to hang out fellowship. I believe there's going to be some food. And if you want to bring a side dish, you can do that. Uh, when we get a little closer, I've already typed up some directions. It's I want to say it's about 25 minutes from here at the most. And it's straight down 72 and then a couple of side roads. Uh, but it's a beautiful place. It's, it's a neat place to, especially in the evening time, be able to see the sunset. Um, but that night it'll be, I believe, at 1 o'clock at the Valencia's house. And then we're still going to have church here at 5 o'clock. So I thought it'd be cool that we can all get together, have a, a church picnic. And at the same time, most of it, you know, there will be some more people you can meet as well uh, that are believers and get some encouragement. Um, and I think that's it. Yeah. All right. Well, tonight we're going to look at the, you know, Mark chapter 6. And we last week we got through about 13 verses of it. And uh, last time we gathered, Jesus was sending the 12 the 12 disciples that he had chosen. And uh, he had spent all night praying over these 12, and he chose them for two purposes. He chose them to be with Jesus, and he chose them to be sent out by him. And so they were his disciples because they spent time with him, number one. And number two, they were his disciples, and you can see that because they were sent out by him with his authority. But just on the heels of him being rejected in his own hometown, you see, Jesus, uh, he's not deterred by this. He knows that, his, he, that God's got timing, and he knows that he came down here for a purpose. And so just because he's rejected doesn't mean that he's not going to continue on. Uh, he, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And, and since the fall of man, God has been pursuing man, trying to bridge that gap that we seem to think is this like little gap, like it's a little creek. But the gap between God and man is so vast that we can't even fathom how far it is. Because our sin and the rejection of the one that can save us from our sin is, is the one thing that keeps us from God. It, it, it separates us. It puts that, it remain, that chasm remains between them. And so Jesus, though he's being rejected and he knows his disciples are going to be rejected, he's, he's walking through it and, and he's continuing. He's pressing on because he's not worried about what, what people say about him. He's not worried about the response. He knows that he's just come down here to present the truth and those that would receive it, to encourage them. And to those that don't receive it, he told his own disciples, he said, if they don't receive it, shake the dust off your feet and move on. Don't get stuck in that spot. 
Because our job is not to, as we share the gospel and as we share truth in people's lives, our job is not to, to force feed them the word. It's to show it to them, to hopefully whet their appetite for it. And then if they don't partake of it, to move on to someone that will. Because God's word does not return void. And even the people that don't respond to it, oftentimes we, we kind of get stuck on them and we don't move on. We miss out on people that are ready to respond to it. And so Jesus at the heel end of his rejection by those he was teaching in Nazareth is the people that saw him grow up in Nazareth. Uh, with all this going on, he sent them out. He sent out the 12 with specific instructions. He said, I want you to go to these people and I want you to preach the gospel. But he said, not just any way, not just any method will work. This is how I want you to go. So they were to, number one, go in pairs of two. Number two, they were to go with the power that he gave them to cast out demons and to, to heal. Number three, they were to take nothing except a staff to walk with, uh, the sandals on their feet and the clothes on their back. They weren't even supposed to take any money. God was supposed to be the one that would provide for the mission that he sent them on. Number three, they were to, excuse me, number four, they were to stay with any who would receive them and their message, but depart from those who would not receive them or their message. So this was the specific instructions that he gave them. So they obeyed and they were sent. Notice that he sends the 12 and they go. And I often think about this because he had chosen the 12 and yet amongst them was a devil. It was Judas Iscariot. But it says of all of them, they all obeyed this. This number one step, he's, he sent them out and they, and they went. So Judas went with them. So just a thought to keep in the back of your mind as we go forward in this, in this book. Because as we see how it plays out in Judas's life, one step of obedience is not what keeps us in the will of God. It's obeying each step of the way as he reveals his will to us. So verse 12 says, So they went out and they preached that people should repent, and they cast out demons and anointed many with oil who were sick, and they healed them. Number one, they preached that the repentance for the remission of sins. Number two, they met practical needs. They cast out demons, which we wouldn't see as a practical need, but it was a very practical need. They were being tormented, and so Jesus sent them out to do the same thing that he did, to set the captives free and to heal the sick. So as Jesus sent them, and they went out and did what they sent, were sent to do the way that they were sent to do it, Jesus gave them authority, and because of that, they were able to do all the works that he had done. So while all this is going on, Jesus' reputation, it continues to spread, it multiplies. And as it does spread, people have reactions, right? If you talk to anybody about Jesus, if you mention his name, there will be a reaction. Sometimes it's a silent reaction. Sometimes it's a reaction that's vocal. But there's always a reaction. You, you can't help but respond to the name of Jesus. Many will recoil. Many will be blessed. Many will be like, oh, I didn't know you were a believer. I'm so excited. I didn't even know I was working with someone that calls on the name of Jesus and trusts him. And it can be an encouraging thing, and it can be a very discouraging thing. And we talked about that last week as we looked at Jesus being rejected in his own hometown. You know, it had to be, re it had to be discouraging for him to be rejected by the very people that he was born into, his own family. So they, they, they said, okay, you're saying you're the Son of God. No stinking way. There's no way that you're the Son of God. I watched you grow. And, and you know, so they had problems with it. But the responses went to dignitaries, people that were in charge. They also went to, to random people, it says here in verse 14 through 16. 
It says in verse 14, Now King Herod heard of him, for his name had become well known. And he said, John the Baptist is risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. Verse 15, Others said, It's Elijah. And others said, It's the prophet, or like one of the prophets. But when Herod heard, he said, This is John, whom I beheaded. He's been raised from the dead. Now their responses here, I want to look at these really quick because it seems like King Herod's a little bit upset here. He's hearing about all the things that Jesus is doing and he's saying, this is John the Baptist. This has got to be him resurrected. Here we have the differing responses to the hearing of Jesus and his reputation. It's almost as if they're debating. Everyone has an idea about who Jesus is and we see this today. Everyone debates, Jesus was just a good teacher, or Jesus is the Son of God, or Jesus is just some guy, he was a carpenter, big deal. You know, and you have these different responses, but the response that you have to the name of the Son of God is an important response. It's, it's one that hangs on your, your, your entirety, excuse me, the entire, your entire eternal salvation hangs on this question. And so, King Herod's response was, it's John the Baptist who has risen from the dead. Now, to me, this seems a little bit random. Like, why is he saying that? It's almost as if, you know, they're debating, but John the Baptist had risen from the dead. His reasoning was that this would be the only way that he was able to do signs and wonders. Let me say that again. It's John the Baptist who has risen from the dead is his response. And so his reasoning was that this would be the only way to know because he'd done signs and wonders. Well, if you look at the life of John the Baptist, he never did a miracle. This isn't reasonable at all. John the Baptist was not a miracle man. He was, a, he was kind of a hippie. He was out in the woods. He was in the desert, and he was preaching repentance. That's all. He didn't do any mighty work. The only mighty work that he did was he preached truth, and those that came to him and had specific questions, he would give them counsel. So... King Herod's response isn't based on anything. It's just based on fear. And that's what we'll look at here in a second. But the other responses, it says others responded. We don't know who it is, but it says that they said, it is Elijah, which to us seems odd, but to them it's completely logical because if you take into consideration the scriptures in the Old Testament, it also, it's also important to realize that this is not the first group that mistook Jesus for Elijah. If you guys remember with me, there was a time where Jesus stops and he's talking to his disciples and he says, who do men say that I am? And of course, they, they raise their voices and they say, well, some say that you're Elijah because he, his, his ministry just had so many similarities. And uh, so it would make sense that they did this because in this culture, they have the Old Testament. They have Malachi chapter 4, verse 5 that says, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. So it says there in that passage that Elijah would come before the Messiah. Now some might say that it's obvious that Elijah would come before the Messiah because Elijah came in the Old Testament and Jesus came on the scene, you know, after Malachi 400 years later. So obviously Elijah came first. But the problem with that is that Elijah, excuse me, the book of Malachi was written around 430 years after Elijah had already, been, had already come. And then Elijah was taken up in 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 11. He was taken up in a whirlwind. Elisha was there, 
And he said, I will not depart from you. And he said, well, if you see me depart, then your, your, your prayer is granted because Elisha wanted a double portion of Elijah's ministry. And so Elijah had already departed, and this, this Old Testament book, Malachi, was written 430 years later. So who is he talking about? Who is this Elijah? He said Elijah would come. So because of that, they were living with the expectation that Elijah would come back. It makes sense, right? I mean, at least it seems to make sense. He didn't die. He went up in a whirlwind. Many, however, saw John the Baptist as the one who had come in the spirit and in the power of Elijah. He was, he was in the desert. He was preaching repentance. And uh, he was pretty bold with dignitaries. He didn't show any partiality. He, when God put a message on his heart, he let it rip. And some people got offended. Elijah had lots of problems with that. So, who is this guy? Well, he had Elijah's boldness and lack of partiality towards characters, just like John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is the character we're talking about today. And still yet, others responded, it's the prophet or like one of the prophets. So others thought, when they heard of Jesus, it must be who Moses was talking about. Now, I know all of you have read in the book of Deuteronomy in the last couple of months, it's like your favorite book in the Bible. You know, you always check off the promises and you underline verses in Deuteronomy. But in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15 through 19, here's what it says. This is what passage you're referring to. They're saying it's the prophet that God said would come. And this is Moses writing. He says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren. Him you shall hear according to all you desired of the Lord your God in Horeb in the day of the assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, nor let me see this great fire any more, lest I die. See, they had been given this, this uh, revealing of God, and God was on the holy mountain. There was lightning crashing down, and they heard, and they feared. They were scared. This was a monumental event. God revealed them, himself to them. And it was thunderings and crashings. It was a horrible thing in the sight of the children of Israel because anytime you get a real vision of God, just like Isaiah chapter 6, it's, it's a horrible thing because all of a sudden you realize that God is real and He sees all. He knows all. And so all the things that are in your heart that you're afraid of, they come to light. And so He tells them here, He says, And the Lord said to me, What they have spoken is good. In other words, I'm going to provide this. I'll raise up for them a prophet, this is a big P, prophet, like you, from among your brethren, who will put, excuse me, and will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him, and it shall be that whoever will not hear my words, which he speaks in my name, my character, I will require it of him. This is speaking of the, the man, Jesus Christ. Even all the way back in the Old Testament, Moses was told by God, I'm going to send a man to you. He will speak my words. He will be from your brethren. He will be of the Jewish people. And I'm going to send him, and he's going to be the one that will speak words, which he speaks in my name. And I will, if anyone does not hear him, God will require of him on the day of judgment. You see, that's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, to hear the words of Jesus and to respond to them by not being obedient is to not hear the words of Jesus. We can hear them and not do them, which means we didn't really hear them. We didn't heed them. And so that's the, the prophet that they're speaking of when they say, you know, well, it's a prophet or it's like one of the prophets. God sent this man. And so 
like I said, he said, well, Herod said it's John the Baptist. Others said it's Elijah. And some said it's a prophet or it's the prophet that was spoken of or like the prophets. It's someone that God is speaking through. And yet after all this, King Herod responds once more. And it's almost as if he's arguing with them. He's like, no, no, this is John whom I beheaded. He has been raised from the dead. So Herod's response here, I think, is interesting. There's a difference between the response of the, what we'll call the others, and between Herod. And Herod's kind of the highlight of this section of the chapter, so it's important we, we see this. Herod's responses are based on fear and on guilt. You notice that they're kind of sporadic and they're irrational. They're not based on anything other than fear. So, Herod believed that Jesus was John, whom he had beheaded. He believed that John had been raised from the dead. Herod's confusion comes from his own guilty conscience. And we'll find out why here in a little bit. It's hard to see clearly who Jesus is when we are in sin and in rebellion. The other's responses are based on truth as they were trying to reason from the scriptures that they knew and had studied. See, the others that we were talking about, all of them were kind of relying not on their own understanding, but what they had read in the Old Testament. Remember Elijah, Malachi, Prophet, Deuteronomy. So they were, they were going off of some known truths that they had. Herod was just afraid. He was, you know, somebody had told him that the boogeyman was in the closet and he was waiting for him to jump out, you know. And so... I read a proverb at the beginning of this week, and I, I think that this sums it up. It's Proverbs chapter 28, verse 1. It says, The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. When we're in sin, and we know it, and we hide it, because that's what we think makes it better, we hide it, right? We get really paranoid, and we start to flinch every time we think that we might be found out. I think about this most prominently because I remember around Christmas time, there used to be eggnog in our fridge all the time when I was at mom and dad's house. And I'm sitting there, I really like eggnog. I can chug it. I will drink as much as is in the fridge. I won't share. It tastes too good. I can't stop. So I know none of you are like that. You guys probably don't have any snacks that you're like, this is mine. That's in the cabinet. I'm going to finish it before anybody else does. But I have that. And uh, I remember going to the kitchen when no one else was around and I looked over my shoulder and I get out the jug and start to drink it, look around and, you know, of course, next thing you know, my brother would come in, not right then, but maybe later and go, who drank all the eggnog? Well, I was obviously guilty, but I would get irrationally upset, like, why are you asking me? It wouldn't just be like, well, I don't, I don't know, I guess I did. It would be, why are you asking me? Because I don't want to be caught. You know, that's a little thing, but think about Herod. Herod's got something pretty deep under the skin that's got him a little upset. Just the, the slightest problem, the, the slightest uh, poke or prod, and he gets upset. He gets irrational. And so we'll get to see what's underneath the service here. But what reason did Herod have to be paranoid? And so we'll look at that. Verse 17, For Herod himself had sent and laid hold of John, and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. For he had married her. Because John had said to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herod was paranoid because he had simply, excuse me, he had decided that he was going to take his brother Philip's wife, whose name was Herodias, and marry her. <coughs> simply put, he took his brother's wife from him and he married her. So John the Baptist, being a bold preacher of righteousness, didn't just let this sneak out from under his nose. 
He knew what was going on. He didn't care if Herod was a king or if he was a poor man. He knew that this man, Herod, had kind of a religious background. And so because of that, he was going to hold him to that standard. And he called him out on his sin. Now I want to keep this straight. Uh, excuse me. It's hard to keep these names straight because you got Herodias, you got Herod, and you got you know Salome. If you actually look at the other uh, books, but uh, it's kind of like a Jerry Springer episode if you think about it because of all the the infidelity going on. But verse nineteen says, therefore Herodias held it against him and wanted to kill him, but she could not. Why is that? Verse twenty for for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a just and a holy man, and he protected him. And when he heard him, he did many things and heard him gladly. Now this is confusing, right? Because we've got this man, Herod, who fears John, but why does he fear him? He fears him because he recognizes by looking at this man's life that he is a, a just man and that he is a holy man. He's set apart, he's different. There's something going on in his life. And so he doesn't have him killed. Herodias wants him dead. Now, I don't know about you fellas, but when my wife wants something, I'm swayed. I, I have some things going on, and if my wife wants something, it's, it tugs at my heart. I want to give her what she wants, within reason, obviously. Well, it seems like Herod starts off really good. He's like, you know what? This guy's okay. He's a just man. We're not going to put him in jail. Excuse me, we're not going to kill him. But we will put him in jail. So he's admitting that this man... John has a valid point. Yeah, he's probably in sin. I'm not going to do anything about it. But yeah, he's a just man, so we're not going to kill him. We're going to do the good thing, right? Well, it seems like the good thing, but later on, this little hiccup that he has by not obeying what John tells him ends up being death. So, and he preached saying, excuse me, I'll get to the So Herodias wanted to kill John the Baptist at the point. She was not happy that John had been so rude to call what they were doing unlawful or sinful, especially because as the current ruler, Herod, had the right to have John put to death, he could legally have John put to death. So um, he didn't, though, because he feared John. He feared a man. That's powerful. But let me ask you this. Was John seeking to be powerful? John seemed to have some sort of power over this man, Herod's life, even though he was a king. But it's not because John was a powerful man. He was a powerful man. It's not because he was trying to be powerful. He wasn't trying to push Herod around. It's because he was submitted to the Lord. And I want to look at that in Mark chapter 1, verse 7 through 8. It says that he preached, saying, There comes one after me who is mightier than I, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to stoop down and loose. I indeed baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He's our, every time he preaches, he says, I'm nothing, God is everything. Jesus is the one. I'm not even worthy to unloose his stra the sandal strap on his foot. That's showing he's not even worthy to be his servant. So John never at any point pulls a power trip. And again, John the Baptist says to his disciples in John chapter 3, and I thought this was a really good text. He's, in John 3, it says, then there arose a dispute between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purification. And they came to John, and they said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you beyond the Jordan to whom you have testified, behold, he's baptizing, and all are coming to him. And John answered and said, 
A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I'm not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore this joy of mine is fulfilled. He must increase, and I must decrease. You see them coming to him and saying, John, all your disciples are going to this Jesus character, and you're losing your church. What are we going to do? You're not popular anymore. And John tells him, good, I'm excited. That's what purpose I came for. I came to point people to Jesus. If they're leaving me to go and be ministered to and to follow him, that's exactly what I came for. So he rejoiced. And his main, to me, this is the, the, the verse that gets me about John the Baptist. It seems like his motto was that Jesus must increase and I must decrease. And that's always true. In, in order for our lives to be rightly put on the rock of Jesus Christ, he must increase, he must be all in all, and we must be very little, perhaps nothing. It's no longer I who live, but it's him who lives in me. And so John here was not trying to be a powerful man. That is not what made him powerful. What made John powerful is that he was a man of God submitted completely to the will of God for his life. Let me tell you, it's the best spot to be in. If you want to have influence in people's lives, Submit to Jesus. Surrender your life to Him. All of it. Because whether you're a teacher, whether you're a co-worker of somebody that needs a Lord, whether you're just somebody that is trying to raise your kids right, all of those things, if you want to have power to do those things, be fully submitted to Jesus and have that motto. He must increase and I must decrease. And you'll notice that it says He must be all. It doesn't say He must be all and I must be nothing. It says He must increase and I must be decreasing. It's a process. We're not there yet. I must always be decreasing and Jesus must always be increasing. Because in that process, what you'll see is that you'll be no longer conformed to the image of this world, as I think it's Romans 12 says, but to be transformed by the renewing of your mind daily. It's a process. And so why was John a just and a holy man? Because while Herod feared John, John feared no man. He feared the man. He feared the Lord. And because he humbled himself and submitted himself to the Lord's ways. Herod could not benefit from John because Herod was more afraid of men. And that's what we're going to see. Verse 21. Then an opportune day came when Herod on his birthday gave a feast for his nobles, the high officers and the chief men of Galilee. And when Herodias, daughter herself, came in and danced and pleased Herod and those who sat with him, the king said to the girl, Ask me whatever you want, and I will give it to you. And he also swore to her, Whatever you ask, I'll give it to you, up to half my kingdom. So King Herod throws a feast. He throws a party for the VIPs of the region of Galilee. These are the higher-ups. These are the people that you want to rub elbows with to have power and influence like we were just talking about. But it's only worldly power and influence. And during this feast, there are men of all sorts in the same room, eating and drinking until their hearts are content. And when Herodias' daughter herself came in and danced, it pleased Herod and those who sat with him. Herodias' daughter shamelessly dances before Herod, and I guess it's his stepdad. I didn't quite dig in that deep. But it seems like since she's called Herodias' daughter, I'm assuming 
that it was the daughter from her previous marriage, from Philip. But by doing this, she wins favor with the king. And he actually grants her a special request. So such dancing, actually, though, if you think about it, was an immodest, not only an immodest, but it was an unprecedented thing. She was a princess. She was someone from the king's house. Now, it's debatable whether or not he was an actual king in the Roman government or if he just saw himself as a king. But people in this day would know what Mark was talking about. But what, what we know, though, is that even if you read the book of Esther, if you've ever read the, read the Old Testament book of Esther, there was a queen, I think her name was Queen Vashti, and she was the, uh, the king's wife. Makes sense, right? The queen and the king. All right. So because of that, the queen was asked to, by her husband, the king, to come out and to kind of show herself off. And the king said, come out so I may show you to all my friends. Now, how many of you guys would do that with your wife and not get slapped in the face? I know my wife would. But not the king. The king said, you know, I'm going to do this thing. And she said, no. She was not going to be undignified enough to show herself off as if she was some piece of meat. And that's good. I like that. I hope, I, I hope my daughter grows up that way. I hope she comes and tells me so I can do something about it. Hopefully just pray for the gentleman that, uh, you know. Anyway, so, <laughs> but my point is, is this was not like some sort of cocktail party. This was not some sort of office party where it was all kind of calm. This was a, this was a bad party. This is where people, there's loud music, people are dancing. He's so drunk that he calls his own stepdaughter, or daughter, we don't know, I don't know, but he calls this young woman to come out and dance in front of him, and it's his wife's daughter, his adulterous wife, but his wife's daughter. And she comes out and she dances in front of him, and she gets a favor because of this. Now, I don't know about you guys, but that doesn't make me think of anything warm and fuzzy. Favors for dancing seems like a very R-rated thing. So because of that, she gets this. Verse 24 says, So she went out and she said to her mother, What shall I ask? And she said, Seems like she doesn't take any time here. She says, The head of John the Baptist on a platter. Immediately she came in with haste to the king, and she asked and said, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. This seems like a very odd request, except we know that the queen here, Herodias, is a little bit bitter. She's a little bit feeling guilty about the fact that she's been called out on her sin by this man, John the Baptist. So, so she went out, she said to her mother, what shall I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. It's funny to me, the immediate reply of Herodias, it kind of shows that the mother had this planned out all along. Her, her daughter going out and dancing was really just kind of a distraction and a way to get a favor from Herod. She had planned this. She was trying to find a way to kill the truth. And people will do this. If they know that the truth is the one thing that will find them out, they'll try to find a way to kill the messenger, to kill the truth. But the problem is, is you can kill the messenger of the truth all you want. They killed all the prophets. But you can't kill the truth himself. Not itself, but himself. He is the one that knows. That's the one we're uh, accountable to. And the girl's question implies by the middle voice that she's thinking of something for herself. She goes to her mom. She's like, hey, mom, I got a favor. This is exciting. I can get up to half the kingdom. And her mom's like, yeah, it's not about you. 
you're going to get a favor from me. And verse 26 says, The king was exceedingly sorry, yet because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he did not want to refuse Herodias, well, Salome, who had requested it. To me, it's interesting here. And I'm going to do a little bit of a word study. But the word there, exceedingly sorry, in verse 26, if you underline it, it's kind of interesting because the Greek word for that is perilipos. And that word actually means greatly distressed. Here we have it in ours that says exceedingly sorry. It's the same thing. It's interesting to me that this is the same word used to describe Jesus' agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was hard crushed to make a decision. Think about it. Herod is hard crushed to make a decision between fearing the multitude that was there that heard the request and, of course, his great boasting promise and fearing the commandments of God that John had just told him, you're breaking the commandments by having this relationship. This is the crux that you and I will always come into contact with until we go to see the Lord. We'll have this opportunity just about daily, maybe not as often and maybe sometimes more often, we'll be tempted to fear man's opinion versus the opinion of God, which is truth that won't change, that we'll be accountable to. And it's interesting to me that even with Herod, Jesus could relate. Jesus had been hard-pressed in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he was crushed to the point of being tempted to not go to the cross. Remember his prayer. He said, Lord, if it be your will, could you let this cup pass from me? If there's any other way that mankind can be saved from their sins, let this cup pass, but not my will be done, your will be done. And it says of him in the, in the book of Luke that he was so distressed at this time of prayer that he sweat great drops of blood. He was stressed to the max. He was tempted in every way as we are and yet without sin. And it looks like here that Herod did not withstand the temptation. He gave in because he was living on the fence. He, he feared John, but he also had all these multitudes of people that he really cared more about what they thought. John had the word of God that was truth that he was going to be accountable to on the day of judgment. These men had their own personal word and his reputation in the palm of their hands. And he saw it closer and more important. So he responded likewise and he took John and he put him in prison. And because of that, he, he had this opportunity. When the opportunity arose to be able to set him free because of the truth. Or he could heed the words of his wicked woman wife. And kill John the Baptist, the only prophet that ever tried to tell Herod the truth. And that's what happened. Verse 27, Immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded his head to be brought. And he went and beheaded him in prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. What a disgusting scene. But in the end, sorry as he was and exceedingly stressed out as he was, he still did as his wicked wife asked him to because he feared men more than he did the commandments of God. Verse 29, when his disciples heard of it, they came and they took away his corpse and they laid it in the tomb. Here's a little epilogue. I think it's not to be kind of a bummer tonight, but this is an extreme story, I realize. This, we don't see this very often, unless we do turn on Jerry Springer and we see all the craziness that the world has going on. And this stuff's going on all the time. It just doesn't look as disgusting as this because we don't have all the facts. But what I wanted to look at here was a pastor that I read that expo expounded this passage. He actually gave an epilogue to this tale because we don't get the end story 
All we know is the prophet was killed and the evil man triumphed, seemingly. We know in the end that God gets the final word. Uh, but what I want to give here is a little epilogue to it that history tells us. Since it seems that evil triumphed over good and the evil characters had the last word, remember what Peter said to Jesus. If you live by the sword, Peter, you will die by the sword. So what this story does not mention is that Herod, we don't think about it this way because it doesn't say it, but Herod, in order to take Herodias, which was his brother Philip's wife, to be his own wife, he had to leave his own wife. I never thought about it that way before until I read this. Herod had a wife before. He left his wife for another man's wife. He did this in order to take his brother's wife, Herodias. He put away his first wife, who was a princess from a neighboring kingdom to the east. Anytime, anytime you're taking someone else's wife, you're taking somebody's princess, whether it's a dad or whether it's, some, whether it's somebody's husband. But let me tell you this. Her father was a little bit offended. Imagine that. And he came against Herod with an army, and he defeated him in battle. So he got his wife that he wanted, and she got to kill John the Baptist. But in the end, an army came and overtook Herod. Well, because of this, Herod was a part of the Roman kingdom. And Herod wasn't the king, we find out. Um, Herod's brother Agrippa accused Herod of treason against Rome, because they were a part of a bigger kingdom than just their own little corner there. And because his brother Agrippa accused him of treason, he was banished into the distant Roman country called Gaul. And the end of Herod and Herodias, once they all they had was themselves, they didn't have their kingdom anymore, they were put away by themselves. What the sad truth of the matter is, is because Herod didn't heed the truth that was preached to him by John the Baptist. They were put out as people that had committed treason. They were sent to Gaul. And once they were there by themselves and they had nothing else, Herod and Herodias committed suicide. They got exactly what they wanted and it didn't make them happy. They broke the commandments of God to get what they thought would make them happy. And ultimately, it led to their death. And that's what sin does, right? Sin brings forth death. That's the fruit of sin. But Jesus offers us eternal life. He says, He who has my words keeps my commandments. He who is my disciple takes my word and he eats it, you know. And so the Lord is crying out in this passage, just obey my word. I don't care how hard you think that the consequences of, of repenting of your sin is. It's always better than the end of this story. This is depressing. Frankly, it's not an uplifting story, but what we know is that the uplifting part is God's desire is not that we would die or perish. I love the verse I got to share one time. I think, Ezra, you were there. We were reading Ezekiel. I, I, for whatever reason, God showed me in Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 11 one time. And he's speaking to the, the nation of Israel. And, and it says there in Ezekiel 33, 11, it says, God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. This story doesn't make God go, whoopee! Because God had sent a prophet to him to preach to him the truth. God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but he sends his truth so that we may partake of it and live. Obey the commandments of God and live. Find life in him, in his words, and who he is. And so, uh, not the most uplifting message, but true nonetheless. And I think we need it. I think we need to have a holy fear of God that causes us to, to purify ourselves, to say, Lord... I think I've made it, so I know that I haven't. Please, search my heart. See if there be any wicked way in me. Purge me of my sins so that I, this isn't my end. You know, 
disobedience leads to sin and sin leads to death. And so may we be the ones that would partake of God's word and obey every single bit of it that he shows us. We're accountable to every piece that he reveals to us. May we be also those that would dwell in it. May we be like those others to go, I think it's Elijah. You know, they were wrong, but they still at least thought it was a man of God. You know, or maybe it's the prophet. Maybe it's Jesus. You know what? A lot of people thought they were probably stupid, but they were correct. It was the prophet spoken of in Deuteronomy chapter 18. They saw, whether they realized it or not, the fulfillment of all the Old Testament leading to Jesus. And that will forever be in the Bible. I think that's cool. I, I would love to be called the others and be right, you know, in that, in that aspect. Maybe I don't recognize anything else, but I do recognize the Son of God. So may we be those people. Father, thank you so much for, uh, for your word and how it searches our hearts. Thank you for examples like Herod and Herodias and, uh, and John the Baptist, Lord. Uh, may this be a warning to us that when you send us somebody to speak truth into our lives, may we not be afraid to, to be obedient to it. May we not fear men more than we fear you. And Lord, I pray that you would continue as, uh, as we spend time in your word during the week, Lord, that you'd teach us the truth, that you'd give us the faith to, to hear it and to apply it to our lives and to be obedient. And Lord, may that be what overcomes the world. May our faith be the victory that overcomes the world. And really, truly, our faith that overcomes the world can only come from you. And so, Lord, uh, pour out your Spirit upon us. Make us your dear children. May we imitate you in every possible way. And may you be glorified and may other people come to know you. May we never have to hear the story of Herod and Herodias in our own lives. May all the people that we know come to know your Son in a way that gives them not only life, but saves many other lives. Uh, Lord, thank you for your word. Uh, thank you for the fact that we can worship you. Thank you for the fact that we can gather. And uh, Lord, thank you for the fact that you have sent your word to be a testament in our lives so that we can, you know, maybe we don't have perfect lives, but that we can have life abundant until we see you face.